Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Habits of Grace. In this series, we look at four ways given by God so that Christians can enjoy Jesus through the spiritual disciplines, receive His grace, and experience the joy of a growing relationship with Jesus. And I really appreciate uh, all three guys that have taught. I thought they did a great job. It's been a great series, and we're going to be wrapping it up today, uh, this series on Habits of Grace. And by the way, if you've noticed in the bridge, in other ways, there's a book entitled Habits of Grace that we all read together and talked about. He covers most of these. He does not fully cover the topic I'm going to be talking about today. But if you're looking for a book on the basic disciplines and, and, and habits of grace. It's a great book. I strongly recommend Habits of Grace by David Mathis. Um, we're going to be looking today at 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 32, as we talk about enjoying Jesus through his table. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 32. I'll be using the New International Version. It'll all be up on the screen here. You can follow along. Hear now the word of our covenant Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Over the uh, last several years, I've had a major shift in my thought and my relationship to food. For most of my life, I, like many Americans, thought of food as fuel. Uh, I can remember one point when I was tight for time and I was big into weightlifting at the time, and I said, I swear if they could come up with one pill I could take once a day and I could skip this cooking and you know eating food and having to do all that, I would do it. Uh, I have now completely changed that. I believe food is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us. Uh, some of this coincided with I tend to do a lot of our cooking now because it was Linda with rheumatoid arthritis. The, the kitchen was not, uh, the heat in there was not good for her. And I really love having a meal that is just prepared and you've taken care of. And if you think about it, as I've reflected on this, food is central to our humanity. Now, why I say that is, uh, obviously, if you think about it for a moment, you can't live without eating. It's not possible. We have to take things in from outside of ourselves to even survive. But if you go back uh, biblically, eating is one of the first commands we were given. God commands us and says, be fruitful, multiply. And then he, the next thing he talks about is food. And of course, when we go into the Garden of Eden, 
everything is open before us except for one piece of food. And that becomes our initial temptation. If you think about it all the way through Scripture, when Israel comes out of Egypt, what is the trial they face most often in the wilderness where they fail time and again? It surrounds food. Are we going to have food or are we going to have drink? Over and over and over again. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, what is the very first temptation that is brought to him? It is food. If you fast forward all the way to the end and we come to the consummation and everything is done, we see Jesus face to face and we all sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Throughout Scripture, from Genesis 1 to the last chapter of Revelation, food is central to humanity. And so it should not be a surprise to us to say when we're talking about habits of grace to find that food lies right at the core of how we walk with Jesus, how we know him, how we relate to him, and how we worship him. So today I want to ask this question, how is the Lord's table a habit of grace? And secondly, how do we enjoy Jesus at the table? And this teaching, I think, is, is important uh, along with these others because when we say a habit of grace, we understand the word. People aren't surprised by that. We understand prayer. We even get that fellowship is important. But many people leave the Lord's table off because it doesn't seem to really be, it just seems more like kind of a ritual thing we do. We're not really sure, does God really work grace in us? Well, I hope to convince you in the next few minutes that he does. So let's begin by talking about the Lord's table as a habit of grace. Now, one of the reasons that we say it's a habit of grace is because Jesus himself gave us this table. This is not something we developed later on in the history of the church or somebody else came up with the idea. Jesus himself gave us this table. Notice in our text, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, for I received from the Lord. Now, Paul earlier in the, in the letter had said in 1 Corinthians 7, he said, look, I don't have a word from the Lord about this question you asked me about marriage and all, particularly marriage when, when a believer, someone's come to the faith and they were already married and they found themselves married to an unbeliever. Now he said, Jesus didn't teach us on that. So I don't have a word from the Lord. But here, notice, he says, what I'm talking about now, this is not something I had to figure out. I received this from the Lord himself. And he tells us the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And uh, in the same way after supper, you know, he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he takes the cup. And do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Paul is telling us here three times in these first couple of verses that Jesus himself instituted this. Paul didn't come up with this idea. Uh, it is Jesus who did it. And Jesus himself actually did it in the uh, the Last Supper, as we call it, he instituted the first Lord's Supper. And he told us specifically this was not a one-off action. We are not told directly, for example, on the night that Jesus was betrayed when he washed the disciples' feet, he did not say, and I want all of you to continue doing this in remembrance of me. There are groups who do that, and it's not that that's wrong, but this he specifically said, do this in remembrance of me. And there are not many things were given by Jesus where he told us, I'm doing this and I want you to do it. For example, he did do it with water baptism, and he did do it here with the Lord's table. And so he's actually given us this, and it means that the meal is clearly meant to be an important part of our life as followers of Jesus. When Jesus gives something to the church, we ought to sit up and pay attention. 
we ought to say, okay, he doesn't just randomly give us stuff. And if he specifically on his final night told us, do this in remembrance of me, then we should not think it is somehow a dispensable part of our walk with him. It is not. Now, as a result, it shouldn't be surprising then that we discover that the early church actually did this, and they came to the table very often. In Acts 2.42, which was the scripture I kind of began this series with, remember we're told, we're given a pattern of how the early disciples lived their lives, and we've gone through all four of these things in the series. They devoted themselves the apostles' teaching, which is the word, to the fellowship, which we'd already talked about, to the breaking of bread, which in Luke's parlance is the Lord's Supper. And I've taught on that in the past. We can go there, but when he says breaking of bread, he's not meaning they stopped and got some fast food on the way home. He's saying they came to the Lord's table together. And then the last thing, and to the prayers, uh, is literally plural the prayers. And so he's saying here that they were devoted to these things, and that means they were devoted to coming to this table. It was their regular practice. This was how they lived out their Christian life. And it was as regular a practice as the word, as prayer, and as fellowship. Now, what that means then is this is as central to our walk as those other things. And I want to challenge us because there are many evangelicals for whom word and prayer and fellowship are very, very central, but this table is not. That is not showing that, well, we figured it out. That's showing we've got some things we haven't figured out because this is equally central to them. And um, some have downplayed, and we need to understand the historical reasons why we do some of these things. We downplayed the importance of the Lord's table because there was a lot of controversy because as the church tried to wrestle through what it means to say, this is my body and this is my blood, sometimes we get ourselves in trouble rather than accepting things as there's an element of mystery. We, tried to, we were going to define it. We were going to figure it out. And so the church turned to Aristotle. I'm not sure why because he wasn't exactly an early follower of Jesus. But we turned to Aristotle and we used his categories and we came up with something called transubstantiation to talk about why it looks like bread and it looks like wine and it tastes like bread and it tastes like wine, but it's actually not bread and wine. And now today we would even say if you put it under a microscope, everything would say it's bread and wine, but it's really not. And we, we got into all this. And then the, the backlash against that, which was also known as the doctrine of the real presence, we almost developed a doctrine of the real absence. Jesus is everywhere in the universe, but not at that table. You can go anywhere else and find him, but you will not find him on that table. Okay, can I tell you that that's an overreaction? That, that's not biblical, okay? We don't go against one thing where we say, well, I think the church got itself off into a ditch, so let's run into the ditch on the other side. No, it is not a doctrine of the real absence. Jesus meets us at this table. The Lord's table is as indispensable in a healthy Christian walk as the Word of God, prayer, and fellowship. And it is no more a mere ritual than they are. Hear that, okay? You opening the Word of God tomorrow morning and reading is not a mere ritual. Me standing here and preaching the Word of God is not a mere ritual. Us praying together is not a ritual fellowship and sharing each other's sufferings and, and standing by each other. We never think of that as ritual, but we come to this table and suddenly we think it's ritual. But there's nothing in the text that tells us that. 
There's nothing at all. And the early believers could no more have conceived of living out their Christian life and their worship together and not having the table at the center than they could say, ah, you know, we, we, we once a quarter we open the Bible. Right? Could, could you imagine that? We, you know, we pray semi-annually, whether we need to or not. But has the church done that? The church has very often done that. And I would maintain that one of the reasons we've done that is we simply don't understand the table. I didn't mind when I rarely, rarely, rarely came to the table because I didn't really understand what was going on. I thought it was a ritual. I had a doctrine of the real absence, and I was like, oh, we're going to do the breaking crackers and drinking some juice again this morning. I'm not really sure why, but we'll do it. Okay? Once I began to understand, no more. No more. I love coming to the table. I look forward to every time we come to the Lord's table. So, with, if that's what Jesus has told us, how do we enjoy him through the table? How do we make this that's not a ritual, but we enjoy him through the table as much as we do through the word and prayer and fellowship? Well, there are several things that we're told here in this text. Number one, we enjoy Jesus through his table when we come to the table to remember Jesus and the gospel. We come to remember Jesus in the gospel. Notice again in verses 23 to 25, Jesus specifically is telling us, and he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And he tells us this twice. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So we don't have to wonder what we're supposed to do. Jesus has already told us. He's made that easy for us. He said, you are supposed to remember me. And what we're specifically supposed to remember, we are told, is his death for us. My body, which is broken for you, my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is saying you are to come, and what you are to remember is my death in your behalf. Because at the table, we are given a visual reminder of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and return for us. And this is very important. We live in a culture that is very visually oriented. In fact, we get ourselves in some real trouble sometimes because Jesus, God did not give us a videotape for the Word. He gave us the Word. And the primary way he gave us for the proclamation of that Word was not video. It was speaking and auditory. And you ought to meditate on that, okay? It's very important. But many in the church today, we want to start replacing Word and audio with video in all kinds of places that it's inappropriate, and then we deny the one place that it was visual that was given to us to visually represent it in the first place, which I might say, when you're trying to be wiser than God, probably not a good practice. So notice here what Jesus tells us is it's about his life, his death, his resurrection, his return for us. Verses 23 to 26, we're told it's on the night he was betrayed. At the summation of Jesus' life, after he has lived in perfect obedience to the Father for 33 years, and he is now wrestling through the final hours of his life, it is on that night. And he says, this is my body, the very body that has lived in obedience to the Father's will and is now going to be offered in obedience to the Father's will. This is my blood, the blood that will be poured out as the Passover lamb, as God's sacrifice for your sins. It is the life. It is the death. But it is also the resurrection and return because notice Paul here adds in this text that as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he 
comes. Because this table is a reminder that Jesus not only lived for us, which is the gospel, that Jesus not only died for us, which is the gospel, but that Jesus was raised for us, which is the gospel, and that he will return for us on that day and settle all accounts, which is the gospel, my friends. And so in this table, visibly before us, what we have heard in the Word of God proclaimed, we see reenacted. His body is broken. His blood is poured out. And he is raised and alive and returning for us. The same body that was broken has been raised. The same blood that was poured out now pleads for us before the throne. And the same one who lived and died will return for us. And this is all proclaimed every time we come to the table. So the table is essential because it is a proclamation of the gospel every time we come. You cannot eat at this table and think, I will save myself. The very table is a proclamation, I cannot save myself. The very table is a proclamation that only him, only he is my hope. He is my surety. And it's in that song we sang earlier this morning, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, how he has uh, quenched the laws of thunder and he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. That's what we proclaim every time we come here. The law rails and thunders, and I am guilty before a holy God. And I say it is broken body and it is shed blood, and that is my only plea. Thanks be to God. Let us love and sing and wonder for what he has done for us. First reason we come to the table. Second, we come to the table to commune with Jesus himself. Don't take the word remember to mean, well, then it is kind of this ritual thing. I just try and remember. Here we are told we actually commune with Jesus himself. Notice, and this is the phrase that sometimes the church tried to think through and get itself in a little bit of trouble, but notice Jesus doesn't say, even this represents my body. Okay? There is a representational aspect, but I want you to hear, he says, this is my body. Because you are doing business with me when you come to this table. This is my blood. And so notice the strong language. And before we start trying to react against things and coming up with 27 footnotes on why he didn't mean it, just accept what he said. Okay? He's saying, I'm here. I am with you. This is this. He couldn't get more real in his language. And there's a reason for that. Because this is not simply a ritual. Jesus is saying, I'm going to meet you in this. And for Jews, the word remember did not mean conjure up a mental recollection of something. If you go back and you look at the Passover out of which the Lord's Supper grew, you had to say, I was a slave in Egypt, and the Lord came down and delivered me. Now, you might be living. When Jesus did it on that night, he's living 1,400 years after the Passover. But you enter back into it, and you say, it was me. I was delivered. I was there. Somehow God counts me as part of that Passover and brings me through. And Jesus tells us the same thing, that we are part of his life and death and resurrection. It's entering into the original event. And this is why Paul makes this very clear earlier in this letter. This section here is actually part of a long section that runs from 1 Corinthians 8 to 11. You want to know why preachers are the way they are? Paul was asked in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, can I eat meat sacrificed to idols? All right, the rest of y'all would say yes or no, but if you're a preacher, it's going to be okay, settle in. I got three chapters, or actually four chapters of writing to do here, okay? So you get 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, and then 11, 
where Paul's answering the question, and the Lord's Supper is actually coming in at the end of this section. And what he's bringing out earlier in chapter 10, he's talking about if you're eating at a, at a, a, a demonic sacrifice, that you're actually engaging with the demons and doing that. And he brings in that context, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17, he says this, is not the cup of thanksgiving, the Eucharist cup, for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. That word participation is the word koinonia that Scott just taught us on last week. Is not, when we come and we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, Paul says, recognize you're having fellowship. You're having participation. You are sharing in the actual body and blood of Christ. You are doing real business before God with Jesus. Now, if you say, can you describe how that all happens to me? My answer is no. I'm, I'm content to say I don't fully understand it. Okay, this is bread and it's juice, but I am told as I participate in it, as I come and I eat this in faith, I actually participate with the body of Christ that was broken for me, with the blood of Christ that was shed for me, and I am ministered to and cared for and fed by Christ himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm content to leave it there, and I'm a guy who likes to dig in and figure all the stuff out. But there are certain places, if you think you figured the Trinity out, you're deceived. If you think you've figured out the hypostatic union, how Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time, and two days, you're kidding yourself, okay? A lot of really smart people have not figured that out. I don't think we're going to figure it out, okay? Let's just take Jesus at his word. This is a participation with him. And this is why we, we sometimes get confused. Notice he says in verse 17 that as we partake, we are united with Christ because there is one loaf, we are many, or one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. We are, we are here, we're united with Christ, and we're also united with the church. Jesus tells us, I don't understand how that happens exactly, but I take God at his word. We are. As we eat together, there is a unity. So this even feeds back into fellowship that we talked about last week. And in fact, we're actually told if we are sinning against one another, we shouldn't even come to the table together which turns to the next thing that Paul brings up. He gives this strong warning at the end of this section that we sometimes wrestle with. And we wrestle with it because we think of this as a ritual, not reality. Because if it's reality, and I'm dealing with the body and blood of Jesus, then it's not confusing to me that Paul gives some warnings with it. Notice what he says, starting in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against what? Does he, does he say that which represents the body and blood? He says, look, you're here and you're meeting with Jesus. And if you're eating this unworthily, it's like being unworthy right there in the presence of Jesus. And he continues on and he says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. And that's a euphemism for doing what? Died. Okay? 
So to eat unworthy, Paul says in verse 27, is to sin against Jesus. Does that sound like a ritual? He tells us in verse 29, to eat unworthily brings judgment, not grace. Rather than receiving grace, you actually bring judgment. Does that sound like a ritual? Then he tells us in verse 30, some had even become sick and died. I don't know what you would have to think about God's character to think that he just said, well, it's just kind of a meaningless little ritual, but if you do it a way I don't like, you might get sick and die. It all makes no sense. But if we believe we really encounter Jesus at his table, this all starts to make sense to us. It's obviously a very serious thing, not some little ceremony. And what that means, if you take all this away, at the Lord's table, we truly commune with and are nourished by Jesus himself, receiving fresh grace to walk with him. When we come to this table in a few minutes, I'm going to break the bread, and I'm going to pour it out, and people are going to distribute it. But who is really meeting you and ministering to you and serving you this morning at his table? Jesus himself. And if we don't meet him in that, we have missed what God is really calling for us to do. Now, the third thing then is if, in fact, we're to remember and we see the gospel enacted and we are to recognize that we're going to be meeting with Jesus but because we're meeting with Jesus, this is a serious thing, then that obviously leads to the third point, which is we come to the table with confession and repentance. We enjoy Jesus when we come to the table in confession and repentance. Paul tells us, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Notice how Paul's saying this is what logically follows. If, if you can be guilty of sinning against Jesus directly, then you ought to make sure you're doing this the way that you are. So you have to examine yourself before you do it. You do not come unworthy. That would be sinful. Now let me be clear here what Paul's not saying. Paul is not saying Check it out, and if you've sinned since last time we had communion, you're unworthy to come to the table. If we're talking about having worth and character and being good enough to deserve this, how many of us would come to this table? None. Only Jesus would have ever eaten at this table. But what he does mean is, have you actually examined, have you looked, is there open, unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life, and Paul tells us this is the perfect time to be examined. And it's not, again, even in a morbid introspection. Sometimes because of this verse, we've turned this into this solemn thing rather than a joyful thing, but here's what it ought to be. When I examine myself in a few moments, and I am prepared, and I usually even start the day or two before when I know we're having the Lord's table, I come and I say, yes, Lord, this is an area where I am struggling. This is an area you have brought it to my mind. And it may be as I'm describing this, God's brought something to your mind, then that's probably what you need to confess and repent of. But I then have the joy because I'm reminded his body was broken for that very thing. His blood was shed for that very thing. The gospel is sufficient for that very thing. Thing. And the only way to eat unworthy is to say, I'm not, no, I'm keeping my sin. I'm not going to examine and confess my sin. I'm going to continue 
walking the way that I have walked because it's okay. And in our culture, in particular, what we want to do is I'm going to define sin down, and I'm going to actually declare this is no longer really sin. We've now come to an understanding that this is actually what God would want for all of us to do. Paul would say, you're eating in an unworthy manner, and you are putting yourself in grave danger by doing so. But if we examine and confess and repent, it should lead to joy. And that's because of the last thing that Paul tells us, which is we come to the table to be freed from judgment. This is why we can have joy. I'm coming in and I'm, gonna, I'm seeing the gospel. I'm going to meet Jesus. Therefore, I examine when I see sin, I confess and repent. But what I recognize is at the table, I'm freed from the judgment of God. Not because I don't have sin, but because of what we're celebrating here at the table. Christ's broken body and shed blood is still sufficient for me and my sin. So Paul tells us in verse 31, after saying some of you are eating and drinking unworthily and that's why you become sick, he says in verse 31, but, but, here's the other option. If we judged ourselves, if we examine ourselves, see my sin, confess and repent, Paul says, then you won't come under judgment. And verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, when we accept God's judgment of us and we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so we will not be condemned along with the world. The reality is if we examine ourselves and uh, we recognize I deserve to be judged along with the world. I deserve to be shut out from the grace and mercy of God. But here in the context of the table, I am reminded I will not be shut out from the grace and mercy of God, not because I did everything right, but because Jesus has done it in my behalf. And his broken body and his shed blood are more than sufficient. What we talked about, and Renee shared this morning, your grace is sufficient for me in every area of life and in specifically in the area that my sins, piled up to heaven though they may be, Christ has come and has conquered them from me. And so if we examine, if we confess and we repent, we are not judged. And I know of no other reason that ought to produce joy in you and I than to know you are not under the judgment of a holy God. You are free, you are blessed, you are his child because of the grace and mercy of God. That's why it's a table of joy. Even when I've just examined and confessed and repented, it's joy because I'm forgiven for those very things. And so God reveals and frees us from sin at the table so that we do not receive the penalty for sin along with the unbelieving world. Here, my, my sin, the penalty, I'm reminded has been removed, but God also in showing me my sin then begins to free me from that sin. Because friends, sin is distorting always. It is destructive always. And so Paul tells us we find freedom from that here at the table. And at the table, rather than receiving justice for our sin, we're given grace by our loving Father so we can walk in holiness and full blessing. So in a few moments when we come down here, if God reveals sin to you, confess and repent. Receive fresh grace and forgiveness, but receive the grace to walk and say, this week, Lord, I, I want to be more conformed to the image of Christ because every area where I'm not conformed, Lord, I realize that's not who you made me to be. And friends, there is nothing will drain your joy more than sin. Okay? It will not give you joy. And if you've been walking with Jesus for more than like 15 minutes, you probably understand exactly what I'm talking about. 
Hey, when you, when you are walking in sin, that is not a joy-filled life. It's a double-minded life. It's a life that, that there is just a lack of joy. It is bereft of joy. But when we come and we are forgiven and we know we are loved and we are cleansed and God puts us on the right path and says, and here is power so that you don't have to choose that, there is joy in that. And as I'm being molded and day after day I look in the Word and I see, and even friends come and say, man, you, you are becoming more and more like Jesus. This is encouraging me to watch and see what God's doing in your life. That gives joy. Sin can only sap it. And the table cuts the root of sin and fills us with grace and lets us walk in holiness. This is not a ritual. It's where we meet Jesus and we receive grace. So how do we apply this? And we're going to come to the table. We're going to apply it and not come to the table. I've just got you all hungry for it, and we're not going to do it. No. This one was an easy one to figure out how we apply it. I want to ask one question, though, as we come. And that ties with this thing of examination. The question is this. Am I trying to fill my soul hunger with something other than Jesus? Actually, I could probably put this and say, where am I trying to fill my soul hunger? How am I trying to fill my soul hunger with something other than Jesus, right? Let, let's all be honest, okay? Okay. So how am I doing that? The table reminds us. See, it's, it's food. And we eat because we're hungry. But friends, that's also a metaphor for us because your soul is hungry. Your soul is thirsty. And what it's hungering and thirsting for is God himself. You were made for Jesus. And this table reminds us every time we come to it, which is why we should not, and we don't do this semi-annually. Because I need to be reminded, oh yes, what I am hungering for is Jesus. And this table reminds me of that. There is a deep longing in us to know and to experience God. We're not longing for ritual. We're longing to know and experience God. And the table is where we can do that. But see, what the world does all week long, it's telling me, it's lying to me. It's pulling me and saying, yeah, that hunger, I've got something that will meet that hunger. It will take care of that hunger for you. That thirst you've got, it's not really Jesus you're thirsting for. Let me show you this little trinket here. And whatever that thing is, we're turning it into sin. C.S. Lewis, in one of the great quotes, said this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Let me pause for a second. When I was a young believer, I really thought some of my desires were too strong. And that was my problem. Jesus, I just got, I got to cut my desires back. So I was being a good Gnostic when I did that. But see, what Lewis is starting to point out, that's not my problem. My problem is not my desires are too strong. It's that they're too weak. And they're too weak for Jesus is where they are. So listen to what he goes on. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday, a vacation at the sea. We are far 
to easily please. That's your problem and mine. I think little trinkets that the world offers me is going to fill my soul. And it's not. Turn on the TV this afternoon, and every time a commercial comes on, what's it telling you? I can fill your hunger. That thirst you got, this is what you need. It's the latest gadget we are offering. This toothpaste will solve your deepest needs. Am I making it up? That's, all, that's what it is. And so, anything we use to fill our hunger that is there for God, entertainment, sex, work, people, money, power, position, prestige, keep adding to it, whatever it is, and it's different for everyone else, but whatever I'm doing and I'm putting my thing in that, it's sin. Not even because the thing itself is sin, it's because I've put it in the place of God. When they plucked the fruit, the problem was not something metaphysical in the fruit. The problem was me being the image of God, me walking with you in the garden is not enough. This is going to feed my soul. And whatever it is becomes sin in that moment. Because I've made that thing God. So, the table calls us to self-examination. So as we come, here's what we want to examine today. What am I using to try and fill my hunger and slake my thirst? Whatever's popping into your head is probably what you're using. What is that? What drives me? What do I dream of when I've got spare moments? Those moments I'm just waking up. Where does my mind run? Okay, other than, oh God, I can't believe I gotta get up. What does my mind run to? I've just got free time. It's free brain cycles. What do I dream about? Because whatever it is other than Jesus, that might be a good indicator that that thing is what I'm turning into God. What defines my self-identity? What makes me, this is me. Because if it's something other than I'm a man or woman of God, I walk with Jesus, I'm who he's made me to be, that thing has probably become a God. No matter what it is. So we examine ourselves this morning and we look at that. One last way of putting this question, then we'll come to the table. Where do I turn for solace when I'm disappointed or I'm tired? We all know what I'm talking about. It's been a rough week. What do I turn to? It might be I am just vegging out in front of the TV. Nothing wrong with TV. Nothing wrong with even But is that what I use to medicate my soul? Because if it is, watch out. That thing has probably become an idol. And it can't fill my Nothing wrong with things. So, so what is it I'm doing? So as we examine ourselves, we're now going to come to the table. What I again want to encourage you to do is not to make this a morbid time of introspection, but whatever that thing is that's come to mind, let's confess it openly. Receive fresh forgiveness from God, remembering the gospel. Because, friend, here's the good news. Whatever that idol is, it's not stronger than Jesus. Whatever that idol is, it's not as powerful as the gospel. 
whatever sin we have engaged in by worshiping that other thing, it is not beyond the reach and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we come and we confess and we have joy as we receive the forgiveness. So I want to encourage us this morning, come to the table and we're going to commune with Jesus. And as his light shines and I see some stuff, we're simply going to confess it. And we're going to tell him, God, I, I, I confess this. I've been looking at this other thing. Would you receive me? Would you cleanse me? And would you empower me? Lord, I need fresh grace. I need you to feed me this morning so that having feasted upon Jesus, I can go out and I can be more like him. If you are a visitor here this morning, uh, you do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church to participate at this table. It is the Lord's table. It is his place of grace. You do need to be a believer in the Lord Jesus. You do need to have embraced the gospel, the very thing I've been talking about. Jesus lived for us, died for us, was raised for us, and is seated at the right hand of God for us. If you believe that your only hope is broken body and shed blood, we encourage you to please eat with us. If you don't believe that, then we would say you should not eat because you're not recognizing the body and blood of the Lord for what they are, our only hope of salvation. What I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, this morning we come to this table. We come to this table of grace. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak and minister to us, Lord. I pray for every one of us here that wherever there might be soul-distorting, God-substituting sin, Father, I pray you would reveal it to us and you would give us grace to forsake it and to receive the healing that we need from your hand. Meet us, Lord Jesus Christ, that we might participate, share, commune, fellowship with you this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Get the elements, hold on to them, and we will take them together in just a couple moments. Lord Jesus, we come to this table this morning. We take this bread. Lord, we again recognize that it was broken because of our sin. Lord, and not just our sin in general, though it was our sin nature, but even our specific acts. Father, this morning I confess my own sin an idolatry in my own heart when I can be more worried about being a man-pleaser than a God-pleaser. The sin and idolatry in my heart when I worry about success in the eyes of others rather than faithfulness in your eyes. 
my own lust, the things you have not given me, rather than simply rejoicing in what you have. Father, and I recognize that the root of every one of those things is me wanting something more than you. Father, I am humbled. I confess. I repent. Lord, I am sorry. I say, have mercy on me, O God. Father, I thank you the broken body of Jesus Christ, that he who never lusted or wanted or ran after or desired anything contrary to your will, he who never sinned in attitude or thought or deed, was broken in my place that I might be healed. So Jesus, I give you praise and honor and thanksgiving this morning for your body, which is broken for me and is given freshly for me. I thank you in Jesus' name. Take and eat. And fathers, we hold up this cup, the cup of the new covenant. We are reminded how much better is the covenant in which we live than the covenant of old. Father, in the old covenant, the law thundered. But in the new covenant, it has been hushed. In the old covenant, the flame leapt off of Mount Sinai, threatening to consume us. But in the new covenant, it has been quenched. In the old covenant, your law was written externally on tablets of stone, and we hampered by our sin, could never obey. But Father, thanks be to God in the new covenant, the law is written on our hearts. Thanks be to God that because we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, renewing our minds, changing our hearts, empowering us to walk in obedience to you and your law. And thanks be to God that that which was a terror to us before your law is now our delight and our joy because of your grace. And so, Lord, we lift up this cup and we thank you that the blood of Christ was sufficient to cleanse us from our sin, to seal once and forever this covenant, and to empower us this week that we might obey. Lord, we do not want to be conformed to sin any longer. It is destructive. It is distorting. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. And we thank you for the power and grace of the new covenant that has come to us because of the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Take and drink and give thanks. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this day where we have met you in word and the sacrament here at your table, where you have met us as we have sang praise to you. You have heard our prayers. You have strengthened us through fellowship. God, you have been so good to us this very day. And Lord, I pray that just as our bodies are made strong when we eat a good meal, oh Lord, I pray that our souls would be nourished as we go from this place that, Lord, we'd be strengthened to be more like Jesus, 
and we'd be strengthened to reach out to those around us. Lord, we live in the midst of a world of dying people who are looking hither and yon, looking to up and down everywhere for that thing which will fill their soul. Father, I pray that this week you would give us opportunities to tell them, I know what your soul hungers for. Come, eat and drink. You don't have to have money. You don't have to have power. It's free. It's been freely provided by our God. Father, keep us free from the power and pull of sin. Keep us free from erecting those idols this week. And Lord, would you use us to reach out to those who are trapped in those things with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray you would do all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. I'm going to conclude with a word of benediction. This is out of the book of Hebrews, whom we oftentimes use after communion. I encourage you, receive the blessing of God. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, amen. Go in the peace of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.